Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It remains June the 6th, 2022 in uh, San Francisco, where I am, but uh, around the world, it's already June the 7th, uh, Tuesday, the day when new books come out. We're talking dystopias, tech dystopias today. We've done that many times in the past. Many different writers have been on the show talking about how we are increasingly slipping and sliding into a, a digital technology dystopia. We had um, Shoshana Zuboff, the author of uh, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, on the show a couple of years ago, she believes very strongly that we're falling into a world where we're being watched and monetized and turned into the product by big tech companies. It's not just nonfiction writers. Fiction writers like Dave Eggers has been on the show as well several times. Eggers has a new book, a new novel out, The Every, uh, which imagines a similar kind of dystopia, I think, to Shoshana Zuboff, only... Eggers is fictional, Zuboff's is non-fictional. Many other writers too, Neil Stevenson has been on the show like last year talking about how the metaverse um, uh, in his new book, Termination Shock, might represent a dystopia too. Uh, It's not just America where dystopias, tech dystopias exist. We've done stuff on China, on China's surveillance state, uh, the social credit system in China, a political system where everyone is watched all the time. German writer Strip Meiter has a, an important new book out, We Have Been Harmonized, Life in China's Surveillance State. And this was uh, underlined, compounded a couple of weeks ago when I talked to the geostrategic thinker Aaron Friedberg on China and what he sees, at least in his new book, uh, a contest for supremacy, uh, China's uh, threat to democracy. We haven't done much on India and tech. We have done some history of India. We had William Dalrymple on the show, the brilliant British uh, a- Anglo-Indian uh, historian. Uh, his new book, The Anarchy, is about the British colonial looting of China. Uh, not of China, sorry, of India. Uh, but we haven't done much on the tech future, the tech, science fiction, dystopia or utopian view from India. That's going to change today. My guest on the show, um, Summit uh, Basu, is the author, is a distinguished Indian science fiction writer, filmmaker, short story writer. He has a new dystopian book out, The City Inside, which I think, and perhaps he can clarify this, uh, he's talking to us from uh, Delhi today. Uh, This is a book about uh, surveillance capitalism in Delhi. Samit, welcome. Thank you so much for appearing and congratulations on the new book. It's June 7th in Delhi, so the book is already out. Thank you. It's great to be on here. And yeah, it's it's, uh, confusing with time zones, uh, clearly. And, uh, you know, it's uh, the first time that I'm having a book day that's actually probably around 9, 10 p.m. my time. So, Samit, uh, this, this book, The City Inside, um, is it a distinctively Indian take on surveillance capitalism or am I vulgarizing your, 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 the purpose of this book? No, you're not vulgarizing it at all. 
Um, I think, yes, it is a distinctly Indian take on surveillance capitalism and the various, uh, you know, multiple choice dystopias and multiple choice apocalypses that seem to be heading our way and which don't have the courtesy to order themselves in, in you know, a neat one by one structure like Black Mirror episodes. Um, it's set entirely in Delhi. It imagines uh, South Asia that's uh, 10 years in the future, but essentially is talking about the anxieties and concerns of the present day. So what is it about Delhi, uh, Samit, that um, enriches, if that's the correct word, or deepens our concerns and vision of dystopia? What, what are you adding that the Zuboffs and the Eggers and all the other critics of tech, big tech surveillance capitalism, and particularly in the United States and China, haven't already said? Well, I think I'm adding the mix of... Uh, you know, in, in India, we have a m number of realities that coexist at the same time. So whereas you might find a more, you know, a, a more clear order in something like a Western setting or something like a Chinese setting, um, here all of those exist across the spectrum, across uh, social classes and various communities at the same time. Um, so it's those margins and those middle layers in the power pyramids that I'm looking at most closely because, um, you know, while anywhere in the world we're at a situation where we are facing global challenges and we always seem to be two steps behind in dealing with them, um, just the sheer chaos of India is, I think, what I'm adding to the scene where you have every dystopia une unevenly distributed but simultaneous. Is that what you mean when you said um, in the city inside that They'd known the end times were coming, but hadn't known there'd be multiple choice. Uh, in the West and in China, they're not multiple choice, whereas in India, because as you say, the, 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 the chaos, the richness of life in, in a town like, in a city like uh, Delhi, lends itself not to end time, but to end times. Absolutely, because uh, we have multiple crises looming over us, like multiple tabs open on a browser. And it's difficult to keep track of exactly what we should be most horrified about on any given day. And that's, uh, you know, that's, I'm sure, that something that anyone in the world can relate to. But it's not even like I see this as a dystopia, because dystopia is really a function of distance. And this is also the setting for the characters' office comedies and, you know, romances and workplace dramas and so on. So it's, it's I'm trying to capture... 21st century moment, but some, but at a moment that could be either, you know, five minutes or 10 years into the future. Is that what you mean when you say um, uh, dystopia uh, is, is, is pornographic? You see it in Shiver, but it's also kind of fun because it's happening somewhere else to someone else. Some of us are actually sitting in the fucking middle of it. This isn't dystopia. This is reality. So are you already in dystopia in Delhi? Summit? Um, I don't think so because I'm in it. Uh, but the further away I'd go from uh, go from it, I think I would absolutely say yes. It's kind of similar to my, you know, whenever I'm reading classic dystopian novels, it's really a question of, all right, this exact thing is happening half an hour's drive from me, a two-hour flight from me, or absolutely in my neighborhood. Um, so it's 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 a question of really overlapping realities and people's perspective from where they are on the spectrums of whatever culture they're in. Samit, I was looking at your Twitter feed and you're obviously quite political. Seems that you're a, a critic like many other, I think, Indian 
progressive intellectuals of the BJP, the governing party. Uh, you retweeted somebody talking about India's brand being damaged irreparably. To what extent is what the BJP is doing and Modi is doing in India, to what extent does it parallel what uh, Xi and the Chinese Communist Party is doing in China? Or is it different, essentially different? It's, um, it's like an anthology uh, collected of you know, various democ democratic struggles from around the world. Um, which which is implemented at different paces in different parts um, and of, of the country and affects you know there's a real range of of uh, strange governments we have at every level from local to national um, I marriage of the Chinese model and the more chaotic uh, you know Russian East European models combined with with uh, the more depressing parts of tech systems of the West. So it's difficult to, it's difficult again to align it or compare it specifically with, with any uh, single system because we do seem to be taking a curation of, uh, of policies and applying them at a speed faster than any response is, uh, is possible to. The speed in India is remarkable. In that sense, I think it reflects uh, the United States. Maybe it's even quicker than the United States. The other thing I think that makes India and, 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 and the United States similar is the radical inequality, the enormous wealth of a small group of tech moguls. Uh, we had James Crabtree on the show a couple of years ago. He's an old friend of mine. Um, he has or had a new book out, The Billionaire Raj, A Journey Through India's New Gilded Age. It's quite a controversial book, and I think he's been sued over it by some of uh, India's billionaires. Um, to what extent is the new billionaire Raj class in India equivalent to the Elon Musks and the Jeff Bezoses um, in the United States? Well, they're certainly getting there in the sense that uh, they're much quieter than the Elon Musks um, because they're... Harder they're, to be noisier than Elon Musk's, I mean. It's harder, and that's a high bar to set, of course, but... Um, they really prefer to kind of stay in the shadows as much as possible because it's it's not polite um, for the, not that Elon Musk is particularly considering politeness in any of his actions, um, but uh, it's the the increase in in the wealth of India's billionaires during the last two years has been staggering when you compare the incredible economic problems that time. None of this is particularly surprising in the times that we live in. Uh, but I do think The Billionaire Raj was a very well-timed book and one that, that foretold accurately uh, what we'd be living through uh, for the next few years. Let's go back to that quote about uh, dystopia as pornography. You end it, this isn't dystopia, this is reality. In your narrative, one of the main characters is what you call a reality controller. What does that mean and why is reality control such a dystopian notion. Um, well, a reality controller in the book is a job title mainly. That is certainly an overreach on what the person actually does. Um, we're looking at a situation where, say, 10 years from now, influencer culture has peaked into this 24-hour live stream, but a live stream that is customized by an entire production team and uh, algorithm customized to whatever the viewer's interests are. 
So while this celebrity is going through a, a, a range of you know various promotions and various slice of life things and comedy bits and all of that, there's also people playing video games in his name or doing travel shows that are ostensibly him traveling. So, and the reality controller is this producer, manager, editor, um, agent sort of figure who's in charge of handling these uh, multiple choice reality live streams. Um, so it's it's a stressful job and uh, she's a protagonist of the book and she's struggling through most of the book to find her agency and to figure out what she can do with her power and influence that isn't just a question of having a successful career if you conform and if you you know stay within the lines which is an option that many of us i think are are struggling with in these times because there is prosperity to be had there is success to be had if you look away from the darker things that are happening a few uh, kilometers away so she is um, she's essentially uh would it be fair to call her she's the girlfriend of the the, the, the main figure in your book um would it be fair to call her uh, an influence manager, someone building brands? Absolutely. She's she's the ex-girlfriend of of the of the troublesome celebrity in the book, um, and she's an influence manager. Uh, but this is in a time where influence management is media management. So the, you know everything from politics to the news um, is customizable, is um, taste aligned, um, and she's she's kind of trying to handle all of it. Who's doing the watching summit in your book? Who is the who who is who is pulling the strings behind surveillance capitalism? Is it private corporations? Is it banks? Is it ourselves? It's India, so it's all of the above, right? Um, what's happening with the surge in surveillance in India now is that we have no idea exactly who's watching the data. The only the only expression we see of it is in customized ads and in um, you know very strange people getting our number from. Uh, we don't know where. Um, data leaks are very regular. So in, in the world of the book, they do not know who's watching, but they know that there are departments of the government that are watching. There are oligarch teams that are watching. There are marketing teams of various corporations that are watching, but they also don't know where their data is going in terms of to the rest of the world and in, in, you know, in larger data grabs or studies or whatever it is. So they are living in a fog of confusion. Which perhaps summarizes everything about India, for, for, which makes it such a rich and compelling and seductive place. I've spent a little bit of time in India, Samit, uh, for, one, for one of my last books, researching your new identity system. And I heard two quite convincing arguments for and against. The argument against this new identity system was it was a form of surveillance capitalism. But the counter argument is that you have a huge underclass of forgotten people in India who have no identity unless the state gives it to them. Both arguments are credible, aren't they? Absolutely. I think both arguments are very credible. And the thing is that as, you know, as long as you stay at the, at the theory level, as long as we're looking at studies or economic models or fiction or even nonfiction that, that's speculative or, you know, anything that that tries to maintain internal logic or assumes the functioning of various institutions then what we have is you know complexity diversity of you know a wide range of compelling arguments it's when these theories and when these presentations and when these pitches hit the road um, that conflicts emerge and it's in the lack of speed of response and adaptation of any form of theory 
to the overwhelming evidence on the streets that is perhaps one of the biggest uh, struggles of india today regardless of what political party or ideology is in power it's it's just that you know collectively we are unable to cope with um seeing the results of vast policy implementations that are often you know tech jumps led by enthusiastic teams of experts many of whom have very uh, correct arguments at least from their points of view but not not you know unambiguously wrong arguments for anything they're doing but when they don't work we don't recover is one of the ironies of 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 your book and your arguments um in the city uh of of inside uh and 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 perhaps some of your other work that two things are going on simultaneously on the one hand you have surveillance capitalism which is in the business of remembering of photographing of observing of snooping but on the other hand you have the disappearance of of memory so everything is forgotten um you have this great quote we sit around and do nothing and history will remember us as oppressors as tra- traitors history won't remember us at all we're not that interesting um and that's the thing that's always occurred to me in terms of theories of surveillance capitalism is it seems as if we always exaggerate our own importance sure it's important for for companies to try and sell us stuff but no one really wants to know anything much more about us do they oh absolutely i mean i think there is a certain amount of of safety in the sheer mind boggling amount of data that is being stolen every day around the world um so so that you know the chances of individual oppression are a really a function of how privileged you are but it also leads to this almost mythology like situation where you are completely at the mercy of of the powerful in any sense so if anyone decides to have a problem with you your life is over and there are no systems that can save you but at the same time if you're within certain circles of social uh, and cultural safety or have a certain amount of economic privilege there is every chance that no one is actively hunting you right now but but either way i think what the troubling thing about that is that there is no way that any of the systems respond to you because you are a tiny tiny data point and very little of what you do actually matters in the wider scheme of things which is not a nice thing to have to live with yeah and the notion of being hunted of course brings to mind blade runner um yeah. and 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 humans hunting one another to discover whether or not they're authentic i just wrote a piece summit about tiktok i think tiktok is perhaps at the moment at least the most interesting social media platform it's a chinese platform is there anything in india that's new anything uniquely indian that speaks to the dystopia that you're trying to describe but perhaps is less well known in the west or are the dominant platforms still the tiktoks and the twitters and the facebooks the chinese and american platform um i think the dominant platforms are uh, still twitter and facebook uh, facebook is probably bigger in india than it is for the rest of the world right now because things have a have a longer uh, usage period in india we we were the only ones still using orkut well after the rest of the world had moved on uh, the story of tiktok in india was quite interesting because tiktok was getting huge in india at a very at a very uh, fast pace and it was also emerging as the platform where it was less controlled in the sense that people from less privileged sections of society were becoming tiktok stars in a way that wasn't stage managed by any of the various you know, cultural power groups or media agencies or anything like that so it was additionally curious when in response to chinese incursion on indian borders the government decided in its wisdom to ban tiktok 
um, which clearly there was some military strategy there that I don't see. It remains banned. Um, so a, a very interesting Effectively, I mean, is there a, is there a, I mean, I know there's a wall of, of China. Is there a wall of India? Can the government actually do that? Um, it's there is one, and it, it is it is getting built in pieces, but it, it's getting built uh, faster and faster. Um, and also because you know in India, what is often relied on is the fact that the process of of adjusting to anything legally or administratively is so slow that effectively you achieve your you know your immediate political or social goals by just banning something and then waiting for years as processes. Uh, emerge to have a long lengthy legal case then something uh, by the time something gets unbanned or you know gets back to its rightful place everyone has moved on um I, i'm intrigued yeah. um uh, submit by your remark about facebook facebook of course was in the headlines in india over the network neutrality debate a few years ago facebook essentially i mean my reading of it was that it was giving itself away for free in India to essentially become the internet. So when people got access to the internet, they were really just going onto Facebook. That happened in the Philippines. That happened in Myanmar with very severe political co consequences. Has Facebook been as politically destructive in India as it's been in Myanmar and in Philippines? Yeah, I mean... See, it's difficult to really tell now because most of most of the larger corporate media houses are extremely careful when they're dealing with anything that has ties as close with the government as Facebook does. But occasionally these stories will pop up of, you know, uh, people in Facebook deliberately not suppressing hate speech or uh, or promoting uh, essentially hate speech platforms or being very slow to remove them, you know, while... Sec uh, Why? Mostly sectarian, I would assume, uh, anti-Muslim, yes, yes. anti-Hindu. Yes, it's mostly anti-Muslim. There's there's also caste angles there. There's anti-Dalit stuff, and also the suppressing algorithm-wise of, uh, you know, of counter narratives. Um, so it's and and these stories appear and then they disappear, and everyone's individual experience of social media is of course determined by their personal social bubbles. Um, so if if you know, people like me can live behind a wall of blocks and mutes and not really have to engage with the noise. But for a lot of people for whom this is the first exposure to the online world, you're immediately caught up in this really sophisticated wave of, uh, you know, targeted propaganda, wherever it's coming from, um, that immediately adjusts your sense of what reality is. And that's something that in in countries where, where you know, where the very access to, to information is often... Uh, controlled by large corporations who are giving stuff away for free. Um, I have no idea how, you know, how many generations it's going to be before at least a slightly mature adjustment to dealing with um, the understanding that there are different realities that are shaped entirely by opinion. Um, how long it will take for that to set in in this country? Go back to your character in, 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 in the city inside the reality controller. That's the key figure, the key power in, in this new world. Uh, I saw uh, uh, that you did an interview with my old friend Bruce Sterling, very distinguished American science fiction writer, who I think now lives in Italy. He's an old friend of mine. Um, uh, he was on my tech, uh, my keen on show when it was on TechCrunch back in 2011. And one of the things that he underlined, what he thinks that makes a good science fiction writer, is rather than futurists, they're good historians. As a 
science fiction writer, uh, Samit, do you think you sh- you need to be good a good historian? It's, because after all, the the future is not something that you can concretely investigate, and the only way to understand the future, at least according to somebody like Sterling, is to understand the past. Yeah, I think he's absolutely right. And I also think he's amazing. I mean, I, I was very lucky to be able to chat with him. Yeah, he's a very uh, cool when, guy. He's a lovely guy. Very, very yeah. down to earth and smart. Yeah. And and it, it's lovely kind of, it was lovely kind of watching him in India, just absorbing data in vast quantities every second of kind of being in the middle of things. But, uh, but you know, but speaking of history, I think what is interesting is that even there, even, and first of all, yes, I do agree that an understanding of history is absolutely crucial when you're talking about, um, you know, a science fictional speculative, where could we go from here, um, understanding of any space that you're writing about, or even any space that you're inspired by when you're, um, what where again this becomes a little difficult is that when you're dealing with with say you know huge tracts of civilization that have effectively had their history radically rewritten several times depending on who the power that is in charge of them or was in charge of them and the meticulousness with which various regimes undertake the removal of history that doesn't agree with them um, makes it very confusing for anyone to even research all of these places um, I, I know that, say, colonialism, for example, is a is a great example of uh, there's always a time when, you know, local histories are completely suppressed. Uh, so then when you're researching these these places and these histories from uh, from institutions that are giving you only those histories, then where do you go uh, to get a sense of what what it might have been like to actually be in that in that place at the time that you're looking at at the same time when you know, when post-colonial cultures, um, they seem to inevitably lead towards these very nationalistic uh, regimes, even in a country with as, you know, as, as established a tradition for democracy as India. Um, even there, the history that that is being taught to kids in India now is this hyper-nationalistic history that is suspect at best, you know? So people who are reading that history and building and trying to build a speculative future out of that are going to have a real problem because that history is speculative as well. So when when you're writing about a country like India, your present reality is multiple choice. Your past reality is also multiple choice. So then what is the future? The future is a void of confusion and and everything is basically an opinion, which is exactly what, you know, uh, surveillance capitalism, anti-democratic movements, oligarchs, um, this is where it's all heading. And that was a major point of concern for this book as well. Finally, Samit, um, later this week, I'm interviewing another Indian writer, Nandita Dinesh, has a new book out, This Place, That Place. It's also a, a chilling book about the future. But that future is low tech. Do you think you can be a dystopian writer in the 21st century um, without making technology the heart of your futuristic warning? Is it inevitable and unavoidable that all dystopias, and, and I use that word carefully because I know you're sort of ambivalent about the word itself, but must 21st century dystopias be dripping in technology, be tech rich? They don't have to be because uh, the thing about, I, I think dystopia is a lot about place and time. 
So if you're looking at a place in time where it is possible for technology to either deliberately or, uh, you know, or organically be withheld from the lives of your characters, which is still possible in this world, but it's difficult to imagine a large 21st century or non-post-apocalyptic future uh, time where technology isn't a huge part of everyday life, because in whatever form technology was in, it has always massively uh, affected society and politics of any era in any place. Having said that, uh, the, the essential the essential dystopian algorithm, shall we say, the essential equations of politics and society and culture that create whatever form of oppression that a dystopia is talking about, uh, technology usually does as much to reinforce them and measure them and control them as it does to erase them or confuse them or overcome them. So I think it's it's entirely dependent on the specific mix of elements that that the author uses. Well, if you want a, an Indian take on tech dystopia in the mid to late 21st century, uh, you need to pick up uh, Samit uh, Basu's new book, uh, The City Inside. He had a lot of fans, very accomplished and uh, highly regarded uh, science fiction writer. Congratulations, uh, Samit, on this new book. It's out now in India and it's out tomorrow in the United States. What else would you suggest people read in addition to The City Inside? What else are you reading these days? Um, my most favorite book of recent times was Blackwater Sister by Zen Cho. Um, I also recently read The Siren Queen by Nevo and completely love that um there's there's too much to read so i'm just i have a to be read book that's hundreds long so i'm just trying to plow my way through it at the moment